I haven't had time <laughs> lately to, you know, brush up on my drug war uh, uh, encyclopedia. Um, but <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's the smile? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be, and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle. This week we are taking a look at Sicario and utilitarianism, and this is kind of a first time we've done this. This is a movie that I did a new release review for when it came out just last year, and I decided let's let's do the full the full review. So uh, to do that, I'm bringing on a return guest who actually hasn't been here in a little while. We have Baruch from the Cinema Bun podcast. Thanks for joining me again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Um, I, I I feel like I should have, in preparation, listened to the the new release review that you did, just so that just I don't end up repeating me and Mike things. Spouting nonsense. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Is that are you are you just are you just you, you might as well just play your side of that conversation, and then that's, I'll just I'll just, just add in my thoughts. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll talk. You're, you're all... doing double work here, and you don't need to be. I don't. Yeah, that's <laughs> the life of a grad student and a podcaster. That's just. Oh like, yes. <laughs> whatever. What's another hour or two? Like. <laughs> all right. So, speaking of your podcast, why don't you tell people about your show and how they can find it? Yeah. So, um, I'm one half of the Cinema Bun podcast. I do the show with uh, Tanja Renee Stidham, and we release every Wednesday, usually, unless we're just feeling lazy. And uh, we we normally our episodes. Uh, have us talking about some like recent movie news that's been uh, happening as well as taking uh, listener questions and then uh, usually we end off the show with a movie review of a new release Um, but sometimes it can be an older release as well Uh, and that's yeah every Wednesday and you can um, find all of our information all of our past episodes on our website cinemabunpodcast.com and I highly recommend checking out their episode on Moonlight which is a movie that has not gotten enough kind of podcast coverage and I think some of it's just because it's not it's not a wide wide release it's not something that everybody got to see but I also just really highly recommend seeing that movie like just yeah. fantastic so yeah uh, it was tough finding it on my end too but um, I, I had to go to like really like a theater I've never been right. to you know out in the, and, and out, your co-host out is like from LA so she's like yeah whatever yeah, I'll just so, yeah, walk <laughs> three blocks there it is yeah but definitely it's been playing there for like three weeks already <laughs> right so. exactly but definitely check out cinema bun it's a great show highly recommended um so before uh before we uh kind of get into the psychology in the movie do you have a couple movie recommendations for us uh yeah sure definitely um so uh one one movie recommendation that i picked was based on the theme of utilitarianism um and it's it's uh definitely not a, a serious take on it but um hot fuzz uh so nice. there's definitely <laughs> it definitely plays around with it that theme again is you know since it's a comedy uh it, it, it plays around with it in a funny way but um that was one of the first movies that i thought of when i looked at the the, the theme for this week um just just because of that group of and i don't know if i don't know if this is a the greater good i haven't seen i mean the greater fun, good right i <laughs> yes, mean it's the literally good. the definition of utilitarianism it's perfect. exactly yeah. exactly um <laughs> so that just jumped to my head and i i i 
I love, love, love Hot Fuzz um, as a film just because of how it also makes fun of the the buddy cop genre as a whole. And then my second recommend uh, is for uh, No Country for Old Men. Um, and that was because of kind of how uh, Sicario um, deals with the drug war and, and the drug war kind of surrounds the, the, uh, the, I guess, the plot of No Country for Old Men. Um, it's also just a film that kind of treats its story in a very patient mm. and tension filled way. Yes. Um, and, and there's kind of, um, Tommy Lee Jones's character in the, in that film, um, Ed, Ed Tom, he often seems, you know, very experienced and capable, but over his head with, with oh, yeah. what he has within this film. Um, and that, and that very directly ties into, um, what we'll get into with, yeah. uh, um, um, and I'm blanking. Yeah, on Emily Blunt's her, a little Emily in overhead in this movie. Yes, yes for yes. sure. Yeah, that you know, like, it's interesting you bring that up because I just rewatched No Country for Old Men. Like, it was one of those movies that, like, I think I saw once in the theater and then once when I bought it and then just kind of put it on the shelf because it's not a movie where you're like, you know what I'm in the mood for? Like, this light romp of No Country oh, for Old no. Men. And I sat through <laughs> it again and, like, just forgot how fucking good that movie is. Like, someday we're going to have to cover that movie on the podcast because it's just. I mean, it's it's one of the best movies of of the last couple decades. Like, I think it's just an incredible yes. work. So, yes. great, great recommend. Two great recommendations on the opposite ends. <laughs> All right, uh, so we're going to take a little break. I will talk about utilitarianism, and then we'll bring Baruch back to talk about Sicario. Hello, I'm Andrew, and I'm Bernadette, and we're the AB Film Review. We're a weekly film review and discussion podcast from Perth, Western Australia. We're a married couple who like to spend our Saturday evenings avoiding reality by discussing and often arguing about the latest films and some classics. And getting closer to divorce. Uh, you can find us on the Podbros Network at podbros.com, also on Twitter at AB Film Review, Facebook AB Film Review, and our website abfilmreview.com. That's a lot of ABs. That's it. All right, so time for the psychological section. Today we're talking about utilitarianism. So this is an ethical theory that basically says the best action is the one that maximizes utility. Now, utility can be defined in lots of different ways, usually in terms of kind of the well-being of people or animals. Now, Jeremy Bentham, who founded utilitarianism, described utility as the sum of all pleasure that results from an action minus the suffering of anyone involved in the action. So it's a version of something else called consequentialism, and that, that states that the consequences of any action are the only standard of right and wrong. Now, proponents of utilitarianism don't all agree. So should individual acts conform to utility or should agents conform to ethical rules? So that's the difference between something called act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism. Or should utility be calculated as this aggregate, like total utilitarianism, or as an average? Although the seeds of the theory is found in the in hedonists like Epicurus, they viewed happiness as the only good, the tradition actually begins with Bentham, who we mentioned earlier, and includes people like John Stuart Mill, Peter Singer, and Henry Sidgwick. It has been applied to social welfare economics, the crisis of global poverty, um, raising animals for food, and the importance of just avoiding existential risks to humanity. Now, we did mention that it started with Jeremy Bentham, but that isn't necessarily the birthplace of it. For instance, 
Uh, David Hume wrote, In all determinations of morality, this circumstance of public utility is ever principally in view, and wherever disputes arise, either in philosophy or life, concerning the bounds of duty, the question cannot by any means be decided with greater certainty than by ascertaining on either side the true interests of mankind. If any false opinion, embraced from appearances, has been found to prevail— as soon as farther experience and sounder reasoning have given us juster notions of human affairs, we retract the first sentiment and adjust anew the boundaries of moral good and evil. So basically, he's saying we have to look at the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. And if we figure something out later, we have to go back and fix it. So now we get to Jeremy Bentham, who is the founder of utilitarianism. His book, An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, was printed in 1780. Now, this book was not an immediate success, but the ideas were spread further when Pierre-Etienne Louis Dumont translated, edited sections from a variety of these manuscripts into French. Now, his work kind of opens with a statement on the principle of utility. He says, Nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do. By the principle of utility is meant that principle which approves or disapproves of every action action whatsoever, according to the tendency it appears to have to augment or diminish the happiness of the party whose interest is in question, or what is the same thing in other words to promote or oppose that happiness. I say of every action whatsoever, and therefore not only of every action of a private individual, but of every measure of government. So this is really all about happiness, and not just in your personal life, but in public life as well. Even introduce like methods of calculating the value of pleasures and pains, uh, which has now come to be known as hedonic calculus. He says that the value of a pleasure of a pain considered by itself can be measured according to intensity, duration, certainty, and remoteness. And after this, it kind of moves to John Stuart Mill. So he studied under Bentham, and his book, Utilitarianism, first appeared as a series of three articles published in a magazine in 1861 and then was later reprinted as a book. And he rejects this quantitative measurement of utility, and he says this, It is quite compatible with the principle of utility to recognize the fact that some kinds of pleasure are more desirable and more valuable than others. It would be absurd that while in estimating all other things, quality is considered as well as quantity, the estimation of pleasure should be supposed to depend on quantity alone. So most importantly, in his book, he offered what he called a proof of the principle of utility. The only proof capable of being given that an object is visible is that people actually see it. The only proof that a sound is audible is that people hear it. In like manner, the sole evidence it is possible to produce that anything is desirable is that people do actually desire it. No reason can be given why the general happiness is desirable, except that we all, so far as we believe it to be attainable, desire our own happiness. We have not only all the proof which the case admits of, but all which it is possible to require that happiness is a good, that each person's happiness is a good to that person, and the general happiness, therefore, is good for all people. Now, of course, there's been some developments in the 20th century as well. There's something called ideal utilitarianism, and this was first introduced in 1907 in a book called The Theory of Good and Evil. And he rejected a purely hedonistic version of utilitarianism, of utilitarianism and argued that there's a range of values that can be maximized. The strategy was to show that it is intuitively implausible that pleasure is the only measure of what's good. 
He, the author Moore also admits that it's impossible to prove that case either, either way, but he believed it's intuitively obvious that even the amount of pleasure – that even if the amount of pleasure stayed the same – a world that contains such things as beauty and love is a better world. He adds that if a person was to take the contrary view, then I think it's self-evident that they would be wrong. Now, in the mid-20th century, we have something called act and rule utilitarianism. At this point, it's already accepted that it's necessary to use rules to help you choose the right action because the problems of calculating the consequences on each and every occasion would result in you frequently choosing something less than the best course of action. So these are like guidelines. Uh, and this author Paley says it's truly a whimsical supposition that if mankind were agreed in considering utility to be the test of morality, they would remain without any agreement as to what is useful and would take no measures for having their notions on the subject taught to the young and enforced by law and opinion. The proposition that happiness is the end and aim of morality does not mean that no road ought to be laid down to that goal. Nobody argues that the art of navigation is not founded on astronomy because sailors cannot wait to calculate the nautical almanac. Being rational creatures, they go to sea with it already calculated, and all rational creatures go out upon the sea of life with their minds made up on the common questions of right and wrong. But rule utilitarianism proposes a more central role for rules that was thought to rescue the theory from some of its criticisms, particularly problems to do with justice and promise keeping. Because if you do something wrong, something against the law, something that hurts another person, yes, the best thing for your own personal happiness is to be set free, but maybe not the best for everyone's happiness. And there are many other brands of utilitarianism, something called two-level utilitarianism, preference utilitarianism, negative utilitarianism. Uh, and motive utilitarianism. I'm not going to go through all of them because it would just take too long, uh, but this stuff is pretty uh, easily available if you look it up online. So what are the criticisms? So we already talked about it ignores consequences. Uh, it also There's also a section about it predicting consequences. So some argue it's impossible to do the calculation that utilitarianism requires because consequences are not knowable. We don't know what's going to happen because of our actions. And one author, Daniel Dennett, describes this as the three-mile island effect. He points out not only is it impossible to assign precise value to these incidents, but it's impossible to know whether ultimately the near meltdown that will occur, such as in the three-mile island situation – is that a good or a bad thing? He suggests that it could – that it would have been a good thing if plant operators learned lessons that prevented future serious incidents. But I think one of the, the biggest problems utilitarianism is it demands objective thought, which humans are not so great at. It demands us to be impartial. You know, we go into a situation, we try to assign value to it if, if you are a utilitarian. But think of it this way. If, if you're in a situation and your family is at risk or your friends are at risk, do you think you are giving them the same amount of value as you do strangers, other people's lives who, you know, by all utilitarian measures matter just as much, but you're not going to be able to be objective in that situation. So utilitarianism is a good thing, I think, in, in theory, but it's really hard for human beings to access. So one of the things I always think about when I do these sections is like, not only does it apply to the movie, but why should people care? What's so important about utilitarianism? Well, it's it's easy to look at this from this kind of macro view and be like, well, of course, we want to do the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. But can we really do that in our real lives? And I think this movie puts forward the idea that in some circumstances you can, but does that – do you know 
that that's the best moving forward? Or are you just kind of making assumptions? Can we apply anything mathematical to this to say like, no, this is definitely the the best decision we can make? And I think it depends on who you ask and their and their life experience. And we'll talk about this a lot more with Baruch, but we have a main character who's truly inexperienced in the ways of the world in which she is kind of transported into in this movie. So her thoughts on what's best for the most amount of people may be more rule-bound and justice-bound. But then you have other characters in this movie who have lived in this world, who have seen the terrible things that occur because of decisions either our government or individuals have made. So in their head, it's kind of like, no, we actually know that that's not working, and we need to take a closer look and figure out what might work. And sometimes these decisions are really difficult. And we may be able to look back at decisions our government has made or law enforcement has made and and see later like that we couldn't see the consequences ahead of time. So it's a really it can be actually a really dangerous way to look at things in this kind of utilitarian model because we don't know what's coming next and we really can't be sure. So we just kind of have to I think hope that we're making the best possible decision in this moment. All right. So that's it for our psychological section. We'll take a little break and then bring Baruch back in to talk about Sicario. Most people know Stanley Kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh Oh, so wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right, so it's time to talk about the movie now. Time to talk about Sicario. So, Brooke, what is your uh, what is? It's got to be a short history movie. It hasn't been out that long. But what is your your history with Sicario? Did you see it in the theater? What was your kind of initial reaction to it? It's funny, actually. I, I'm I don't no, I did see it in the theater. I did. I'm pretty sure we did an episode on it, actually. <laughs> um, but for some reason, I can't remember. This is well. This came out. This came out last year around what what. I think it was like kind of right before Oscar season hit, like that weird lull uh, before Oscar season. So maybe like September, October, maybe around that time. September, yeah, yeah. So never mind. I'm okay. So we, I'm then, then I'm sure we didn't do an episode on it, but I must have seen it. This was so September last year was around the time when I was when I was writing my dissertation. So that's why that that whole time. Right, and you're a pansy, so you took a break. (laughs) from <laughs> podcasting i'm like idiots like me like i'll just do both it's fine yeah no no way <laughs> godspeed to you you are you are a hero stupid um, stupid is the word you're searching for it's <laughs> um but i definitely so i yeah i'm pretty sure we did not do an episode on this then um but i remember watching it and it must not have been in the theaters but um, I do I do vividly remember the lead up to its release and kind of the trailers that were being released and number one, just being struck by how beautiful it looked. And I mean, mm. Roger Deakins, Roger Deakins. Yep. Doing so. The fucking <laughs> Sally course. Field of cinematographers who will never win right. an award, but consistently Ugh. puts out the best work every year. Right, right. So, I mean, not surprising, but just I was I was so struck by how beautiful it looked mm-hmm. and then how also just how I, I, I guess hopeless and brutal it looked 
Yeah. Um, just in the trailer. Yep. <laughs> you know, and then and then that, uh, in addition to a lot of the the good buzz that it was getting, just really piqued my interest and um, or piqued my interest. And so, um, that's that's kind of what I remember. And and I, at some point I watched it. I don't remember by what medium, but <laughs> <laughs> I watched it and loved it. Um, and so this will be my. I don't know, third time maybe seeing it, I think. Right. Um, for this review. Nice. Um, yeah. I know like my, my reaction to it was pretty strong when I first saw it. And I can actually <laughs> this is interesting. It's I think this is actually about the time uh Mike and I became much closer friends, because that's about the time we were like for some reason like texting each other instead of messaging each other on social media networks. And I, I walked out of the movie and I was like I was very when I see a movie that's really good, at least back then I was I kind of held it really close and didn't want to didn't want to say too much didn't want to say like how much i liked it in case like people i liked and respected were like fuck is wrong with you that movie's terrible uh-huh. Uh-huh. so i was like I mean, hey uh, knowing knowing mike i i right? understand that feeling. like arrival <laughs> for instance yeah this <laughs> asshole uh oh, so i texted him right after the movie because he he mentioned wanting to see it and i wanted to see it and i was just like yeah it was it was really good and that's all i said and then he got out of the movie and he was like really good that was awesome. What are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, it's my favorite movie of the year. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> like, and it kind of stayed in that top five, top ten range for the whole year. I think, you know, it's definitely not the type of movie that's going to get Oscar buzz. It's, you know, it's pretty violent. It's pretty – it's kind of an indictment of governmental processes in the United States. Like this is not something that they're like, oh, no, we like things that celebrate Hollywood or things that are about terrible things that happened long ago not so much what's happening right now let's not yeah. let's not talk about that but you know i walked out and just loved it i ended up seeing it twice in the theater you know bought it on blu-ray rewatched i mean it's just it's one of those movies that although is it's not an easy watch by any stretch i also didn't i also don't see it as like this movie that's like oh this is a really tough watch like it's hard to it's good but it's hard to get through like it, there are moments because of like kind of the the action in the film the the way it's kind of set it's still like weirdly an enjoyable watch like but it's so it's like in that weird in between it's about tough subject matter but it's not something that feels like homework when you sit down to watch it like you know the movie i immediately think of of course when i think of this movie is traffic uh and that movie feels a little bit more like homework you know and of course you know given given who the director is like it's very it's very kind of up here and very like it gets a little preachy in some points although it's a great great film and one i own it's not something that's e- as easily rewatchable as this is to me right and actually when i was thinking about uh my recommendations for for the episode um that was another movie that came like, you know, straight away to my mind of just course. because of the subject matter, even though I've never actually seen traffic. Oh, so, right. So, <laughs> so I, I, I need to, I need to watch that. Um, but, but it, it's one that, you know, obviously like very familiar with, with what the subject matter is. And that's, that's a, that's definitely a film that came to mind when I was watching Sicario and thinking about it. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, it, it almost has to, like, it's just like when you yeah, think of movies yeah. about the war on drugs, like that's, that's going to come straight to your mind. Uh, Let's talk about the direction for a minute. So this is directed by uh, Denis Villeneuve, uh, who also directed the aforementioned Arrival, which is a great movie, no mm-hmm. matter what Mike says. Uh, <laughs> and, and we'll be doing a Blade Runner reboot uh, in the next coming years, which right. it's one of those things where um, I hate the fact that it's happening. But if anyone's going to do it, I'm OK with him doing that reboot because i love blade runner and i think it should be touched like it's just it's such a product of its time but we'll, we'll see what he what he does with it um, yeah i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna just say this 
real quick, and, and, and it might cause you to throw me off the podcast right now. I'm ready. The my finger's on the button. <laughs> Is this I've never – wait, 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 wait. Right. It's one of two things. It's I've never seen Blade Runner or I don't like Blade Runner. Which one is it? <laughs> You're, it, it is one of those things. <laughs> I, I, It's not that I don't like Blade Runner. I think it's – I think it's severely overrated. No, get out of here. You're horrible. You know, you're lining up with people like True Romance right now. Just just know that. That's that's where you're at. Like you. Oh man, we are just knocking down so many podcasts that's, in this. Oh, that's what I do. Yeah, that's that's how I treat my friends. It's, it's fine. Uh yeah, so with with Blade Runner and we'll move on from this cuz this is we've done an episode on Blade yeah. Runner, but um it is one of those movies especially if you like I saw it when I was really young. So if I saw it like, you know, between like 10 years ago and now, I might have that reaction because it's so it built for, up. That's what it was. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's the best science fiction movie of all time. It's this, it's that. It's a work of genius, you know, when you start throwing out words like that, there's almost no way you can reach, you know, yes. those expectations. So that's fine. I still love you, Baruch. I won't. We'll kick you off the show yet. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. As long as you still like Arrival and Sicario, you're okay by me. There we go. There we go. <laughs> look, look at the totality of that's of, right. of, of my reviews. Not I mean, we're looking one. at the greatest good, right? So if I have to yes. deal with uh, <laughs> with you not liking Blade Runner as much, it's okay. Yes. Uh, so anyway, so Denis Villeneuve, uh, who's fast becoming one of my favorite directors, uh, like I, I'm not sure he's – I don't think he's made a bad movie yet. So that's that's pretty good. And he's got five or six mm-hmm. uh, movies of his at least that I've seen, including movies like Prisoners, which is fantastic. Uh, it's just, just a lot yep. of really, really good work. Um, so what did you think of his direction here in Sicario? I think the word that came to mind was uh, methodical. Mm. It It just felt very methodical and patient, like nothing – Nothing was brought into frame too quickly or abruptly. It just – and it, it – it, that style um, throughout the movie kind of helped to build and sustain the, the kind of tension yeah. that, that you felt. It just – it was just a continuous like uh, – um, um, what's it? Feeling of like trepidation. Yeah, like just dread throughout movie. the entire movie. Yeah. Throughout the entire movie. And his, his, his patient direction – I feel like through different scenes and stuff like that just allowed that emotion to continue on, right? Yeah. And never, never get high and never get too low, but just kind of like stay consistent. Right. I think you bring up a great point. And I think the – to me, like it starts in that first scene, uh, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, just a stunning way to open the film because it kind of opens with this kind of – you know, shot of Arizona where it's essentially – there's homes and everything, but it's got a desert land and it looks desolate. But there's these kind of homes and there's they, they take a beat with like kind of nothing happening in frame instead of just jumping into the action. So when you see, you know, kind of the – you know, the law enforcement kind of come out of the woodwork and kind of, you know, come towards his house. It's shocking, especially against this kind of stark background of this kind of desert landscape. To like all of a sudden see people in like military gear and automatic weapons. And then the shot where the, the kind of they break down the doors of the house is a really stunning shot and something that even though, you know, something is going to happen. I think Villeneuve is great at kind of applying this force when you're not ready for it and also kind of moving from scene to scene when you think like, oh, wait, I wanted to see what was happening there. Like there's a scene later mm-hmm. uh, with Benicio, De- Benicio Del Toro's character kind of standing over uh, the brother of this cartel member and you, mm-hmm. and, it, and there's – all you hear, all you get is hearing what's going on. So you're not really sure exactly what's happening, but it kind of lets your imagination do the work. And I think it would be really easy for a 
a less methodical director to be like, well, I'm going to show you the gory, the gritty, the awful steps we have to take. And he makes some very interesting choices as far as what he shows and what he doesn't. It's funny when you said like he, 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 how he chooses to show like certain gritty moments and things like that happen in, in this, you know, drug war. I, that was, that was the other thing. And I, I hesitated to kind of use the phrase because it's fallen so out of favor but this is like a really dark and gritty look into mm-hmm. kind of, you know, this this drug war environment and kind of this throw out the book style yeah. of enforcement. Um, yeah, this and, isn't Zack Snyder dark and gritty. This is like no, no, no. actual dark and gritty. <laughs> this is appropriate dark and gritty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not just people looking sad and, <laughs> and turning down the color palette. <laughs> no. Just go gray. You'll be fine. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but one of the, one of the other things that, that kind of jumped out to me as far as direction is concerned is I, I, at least I felt like a lot of the shots in this film felt wide and expansive mm. and not just, not just the landscape shots, but some of the, like even the indoor shots too. And, and it, it, in my mind kind of created, continued to, you know, create this feeling that danger could come from any direction. Yeah. Um, and and there weren't too many like really close up intimate shots. There were a couple for sure, um, but a lot of them felt wider than they needed to be. And mm-hmm. it just it, it again like to me like while I was watching this with with already this feeling of tension in the air, it just felt like okay, there's like something could just be right behind us or like waiting in the shadows or something like and given what happens in the movie that is a perfect description of what's happening to our main character is that she has no idea what she's getting into she's in way over her head even more than i think the audience realizes like i think from the beginning of the film we they set it up very well especially with the uh with the scene with brolin like kind of you know bringing her into the fold as he's just sitting there in his flip-flops you think like oh this this guy isn't trustworthy she's in overhead but given what happens with del toro's character near the end of the film it's like oh 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 she's way yeah. in over her head. <laughs> yeah yeah but, but speaking uh, of the of the direction there's one and this probably has more to do with roger deakins than it does uh with denis villeneuve but there was one shot in this movie where i was like okay i know it's early in the movie and i was like this movie's going to be great and i remember having that that feeling in the theater and there's when they're on the plane there's a shot of the plane taking off and you get like the shadow of the plane over the landscape and it starts off like this all encompassing shadow. Right. And as they get closer and closer to Mexico and they fly higher, the shadow gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I was like, what a perfect metaphor for the war on drugs, just in the simple image. Like when we're in Arizona, we feel like we could make a difference. And then as we get closer and closer to the problem, the influence of the United States and of these law enforcement agencies gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's like a speck in the sky and we're barely there. And I was like, holy shit. Like I was just like, what a great – and it's like 10 seconds. 10 seconds of right. film and tells you so much about what we're getting into as a viewer and i was just like this is incredible and i and it's it's rare i have that feeling during a film like a certain moment where i'm like i'm in good hands like i know i know we're going to someplace good here and i remember having that so every time i see that shot i'm just reminded of like what a cool piece of visual visual language that is yeah yeah that was a really really good shot and something i, I hadn't I didn't notice, but I remember it. So I'm I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I think as far as if I can bring up another shot that was just, I blew my mind, um, was probably, uh, towards the end 
when uh, they're they're all going to that tunnel um, in in Arizona, and it's the sun is setting, and you just see these these soldiers walking at you know you see these their silhouettes walking, yeah. and they just disappear into the darkness. It just <laughs> oh, it was so just gorgeous to look at, as well as just you know uh, kind of informing us that they're they're now kind of essentially going into this dark place right <laughs> like literally but also figuratively like where they're just crossing the line uh, right. as far as like what what law enforcement what US law enforcement should be allowed to do and and we'll talk about that later cuz i think that ties in perfectly to utilitarianism like are we making the right decisions even if they're against technical rules of of engagement here going into into a foreign mm -hmm. country uh the only thing uh as far as direction that i'm not sure about it's something i've been torn about since i saw it and i'm still not sure how i feel about it, is kind of the use of kind of the thermal cam and and all that stuff when they're when they are going into the tunnels and we get the kind of very stereotypical like like tom clancy like like mm -hmm. you know we're we're changing view like i like i like how that's used in some ways because it it gives us less visibility, which is exactly what's happening to these people, especially to Emily Blunt and her partner's character. But it does feel like a little a little stereotypical, like something we've seen before, whereas the rest of the film is so individual and so different and shot in a way that that stands out, where that kind of jerks me out of the movie just for a half second and be like, what movie am I watching? Like, is Harrison Ford going to show up in Patriot Games at some point? Like, what is <laughs> what is happening here? So what did you think about the use of that particular technology? Yeah, I I felt perfectly fine with it. And I hadn't I, – I didn't – think too much about it you know it just i just kind of accepted it and was like yeah that's i mean it was it felt fine to me but mm -hmm. i mean i guess when i think about it a little bit more um it, it i guess i'm trying to think of what the alternative would be would it just right. be them um in in total darkness with these you know with these goggles on and us just the camera just kind of panning to them or showing us the the uh, you know first person point of view without the thermal and night vision uh, uh, view um and i don't i don't i don't know that either one of those would have been better in my opinion right um and yeah i i, I think i think as far as the realism that most of the film brought and not just not just in how unique i guess um certain aspects of it were was but just the realism that it it tried to bring to um their actions their reactions and things like that i i, I think just showing us okay they're they're this is super covert like in the dark um so this is what they're seeing this weird right. kind of, it, i guess if you think about it a little bit it's so unnatural for us to even even if it's something you've seen in movies before it's still very unnatural to, for us to look at a landscape in thermal imaging and and this was this was not even the really stereotypical thermal imaging where it's like oh look at all these reds and you know right. sure um it was it was it was essentially all gray um mm -hmm. and I think I think to that point when you're when you're following you already understand the heightened danger that there is in their situation add on top of that this really alien looking you know landscape with all grays or greens if if we're looking at the night vision um and i think it just it it just adds to that tension for for probably most people um yeah. and so i think it i think it actually adds 
to the scene in that case. And this yeah. is like the height of nitpicking. Like I think this is one of the best directed movies of that year. Like th- this movie is one of those movies. It's the reason every year I get angry at the Oscars, like where I'm just like, oh, God, what <laughs> movies are you watching that you think that's the b- best directed film of the year? Like you, you think Bridge of Spies deserves a nomination. Like really? And Bridge of Spies well, is fine. You know, Spielberg is just an automatic, right? It's he's the he's the Meryl Streep of directors. Like just like, oh, what did Spielberg do this year? Just just throw it at him. But this is one of those movies that stands out not just as a really good film, but a really well directed film. Like specifically, like it it deserves notice. Uh, yeah. So so when my biggest qualm is like, well, I don't quite know if I like that. Like that's that's okay. Like that's sure, sure. that's doing yeah. pretty good. Um, so let's talk about the acting. So to me, there's kind of four people I want to talk about. Of course, first, there's Emily Blunt, who's our main character here, who um, on other podcasts, I mentioned True Bromance uh, already <laughs> once, but I think uh, Hiro called her a, quote, dum-dum. Uh, he was not impressed <laughs> with some of the choices she made. He does oh, love the no. movie. I will say this. I will say that. I'm not going to come out here and say he hates Sicario, so don't yeah. don't message him on Twitter. That <laughs> don't he don't he send him hate tweets. He, he likes it a lot. <laughs> um, but I... I love Emily Blunt's characterization in this. I think they set it up very well in the script that she doesn't know what she's getting into. Like there's there's a whole scene when they're talking about her before she comes into that little, you know, ad hoc interview, like all of a sudden, like, come on in, let's see, let's see what you could do. And she her job is to bust down doors. She's not an investigator. So she doesn't get any of this, you know, like, so I thought her portrayal of that, not only of being in overhead, but as someone who just desperately wants to know the truth, I think was really convincing and really impressive that we get a a female character in this role. Like, we don't see that that often. Like, a, Emily Blunt's just no. so good. I mean, we've talked about Edge of Tomorrow and her performance in that. Like, she's just phenomenal in this type of role. And she's one of those actresses that um, will be, like, I think, someone to watch over the rest of her, rest of her career because she's done romantic comedies. You know, she did The Girl on the Train this year, which wasn't a great movie, but she was good yeah. in it. You know, and she's <laughs> done these kind of action hero roles. She can play a lot of different parts. So it's it's kind of cool to see her kind of stretch herself in kind of the early years of her career at this point. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed Emily Blunt in this film. And, I mean, I'm... Just for a second, separating Emily Blunt from the character, right, and and whatever, you know, whatever I feel about the character for a second. But Emily Blunt played that character well. Um, Thought she did a great job as kind of the audience's, you know, surrogate. For sure. Because we're we're also like – in over our heads in this in this. Oh wait, you, you don't know, know everything well. about the drug war. You don't know how this. I thought everybody. I, well, you know, <laughs> I haven't had time <laughs> lately to you know brush up on my drug war uh, encyclopedia. <laughs> um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, like as we move through the story, right? It just we're we're kind of slowly drained of hope, <laughs> you know, in this yeah. fight. And Emily Blunt categorizes that well you know just in the way that she reacts to things and tries to 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 fight things that she thinks are wrong but just from every direction everybody's telling her like you're 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 being dumb right now (laughs) just and it's really interesting if you look at like her first scene in this movie and her last scene in this movie like how broken and defeated she is still stands up and wants to do the right thing but yeah. like if you look at just her face and everything she's going through in that last scene with Benicio del Toro, like it looks like a totally different person. But if you watch the whole movie, you can see that kind of denigration 
throughout the two hour runtime because in the beginning yeah. she's like confident and knows what she wants to do and you know goes through this interview process and is it's like someone who's really on point and by the end of the film she's just like done like cannot can barely function can barely get a word out without breaking down so it's a really yeah. impressive arc that they built for her too so so good so good um and it's funny you i'm, I'm it's funny that you bring that up because i i remember like the first scene that we see her in she's in that SWAT vehicle or whatever. And it's a really like I was talking earlier about how like a lot of the shots to me felt really wide and expansive. But that first shot of her, it's really close. Mm -hmm. And it's just her and just, you know, preparing to to, you know, uh, kind of do this raid. Right. And she's just she just seems kind of in control, calm, just breathing and like ready to do her job. And then just as you said, at the end, I mean, she's a mess, <laughs> like and she a should be. I mean, mess. yeah, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, great. I mean, I, I thought the arc was, you know, her arc was fantastic. Um, if I can switch over to her character just for a bit, I, I think I was annoyed with her at times. And I think it was partly because uh, I think as an audience, we are kind of used to, um, to a certain degree, our uh, law enforcement characters as uh not having not always having you know the highest moral standards and you know having to cut corners and things like that and we we root for those characters often like there's so many cop films where you know police officers are are bending the law or or just straight up breaking them you know for the greater good uh, usually but yeah but we always we always root for them always (laughs) and and in this case like there were there were definitely moments where i was like Emily Blunt, stop being, stop it. Just okay. stop being <laughs> such a, to, such you a have boy to get scout. Your hands dirty, don't right. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so there was, there was definitely a bit of that on, on my end. And I was, but, but her, her acting there was, was fantastic and phenomenal. I, I thought it was awesome. Yeah. So let's talk about what I think is probably the best performance in this movie, especially on rewatch, which is Benicio del Toro. Like I just, I was stunned at this. Like I've always loved Benicio. Like I think, I think he's a really talented actor, but he's one of those actors that likes to work more than he does like to like pick really great juicy roles. Like that guy will do, I feel like he's one of those actors, like I'll do anything. Like, Hey, you want me to put on crazy makeup and be in a Marvel movie? Sure. What the hell? You know, (laughs) I'm not doing anything Tuesday. Like, let's do this. You know? Uh, So I think sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle just how talented he is and this role i think really showcases him there's and there's a lot of stuff that comes across on a second watch like there's a particular scene where they're kind of going through the plan for this trip over the border into mexico and you just see him like sitting in the back in this kind of rumpled suit like almost not paying attention and you realize on second watch he's doing that because he is playing a part so there's a lot of kind of roles within roles that happen here where he wants to appear as 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 the good guy to Emily Blunt's character. Like, he comes in and saves her. He makes sure... There's a scene where, after she's been assaulted, like, he's the one person who comes up to her and goes, hey, are you doing okay? And, like, kind of pats her on the shoulder and makes sure she's doing okay. And all of this is to get to his end game. And, and you don't really realize that the first time through... Because, you know, about three quarters of the movie through it, it like switches from Emily Blunt's story to his story. And we're mm-hmm. enlightened to what he's actually doing there. Uh, so I, his portrayal is has a lot of levels and was one of one of my favorite performances of last year, period. Like just phenomenal. And it, it, you bringing up the fact that he he, he was playing a part. And, and I, I completely agree that on rewatch, that's when that's when sort of you know, a lot of those subtleties kind of came out for me. Mm-hmm. Um 
in just that um, I, I will I will not necessarily counter, but also add, I suppose, that some of that caring, while it was probably an act, was also also probably because she I think she still reminded him of his daughter of his right? daughter. Yeah. And and so there was also that emotional kind of connection it was it was it was well i wouldn't really call it a connection but just kind of a i don't know uh uh like a reminder to him right um and so of why was, he's doing what he's doing yeah that it's yeah. not just about vengeance but it's about like <clears throat> i think in his mind it's about righting a wrong yeah yeah and 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 again like i don't i don't really feel like he ever really respected her at any point nope. in the film she she was a means to an end you know, from the jump, and he treated her that way in in how he answered her questions, yep. in, in in how he you know gave, gave her commands. Um, you know, like half the time it felt like he like he didn't want to be bothered by her, and the other half was just like, look, it, you're gonna do this because I say so, um, right. and I'm not gonna tell you why. Um, whereas like Josh Brolin's character was a little bit more, he was like that as well. But he 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 added some kind of personality to right. <laughs> to his act, and 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 Benicio del Toro's character was just like I'm I'm not even going to really add, I'm not going to add any personality. I'm just going to be this stoic, right? Like like just I have a I have a mission, and I'm that's what I'm going for. And you're kind of in my way, but you know I'll tolerate you for now. I'll make it work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's also another scene that really jumps to mind when I think about his character and it's a it's a scene that has no dialogue whatsoever. It's a scene where they're on the plane originally and he's sleeping on the plane and then kind of jerks awake and like kind of you can see him going yep. through something like some you know most likely some sort of trauma reaction to to what he's remembering we figure out later. But I love that sequence because it it says so much about that character about how about what's going on, what's bubbling under the surface. The fact that in all these situations, he is totally calm and totally cool and totally seemingly above it all. But underneath that, there's like this rage building from what he's experienced. And just in a little 10 second, just like the the plain silhouette shot, like tells us we don't realize it yet. But on second watch, it tells us kind of everything we need to know about this character in 10 seconds, like in this little microcosm of Benicio del Toro's character. And I thought, like, what a cool choice and to show and to have her uh, have her see it. To have her kind of watch this happen and to kind of set her on edge from the very beginning of this of this trip to Mexico. Yeah, yeah, she knows there's something going on. There's a, there's 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 a lot that she doesn't she hasn't been informed of, you know. And and, and that's that's a recurring thing. Just her asking questions and not getting answers. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's just <laughs> like no, it's okay. I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> no, no, no. Um. And yeah, yeah, I, I agree that that scene in particular was was great because at that point, all we you know really know about uh, Alejandro is that supposedly he was a prosecutor um, we think. in Colombia, <laughs> right? Yeah, we think that's that's what he said. That's what he's right. told us. Um, so past that, we don't really you know we're still kind of as an audience, we're still kind of our 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 um, we're a little paranoid because we're like you're a lawyer. What are you doing on here? It's like or mission. Yeah. What's going on? Absolutely. Yeah. Um but but that little bit does like kind of um support our suspicion, right? right. In a way and, and keeps us engaged. Like, okay, wait, something's definitely going on. It's just it's not just me. Right. I I need to find out what's happening. Yeah. Um and it 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 spurs Kate as well in a yep. way, right? Again, like she's like, okay, I'm a little bit suspicious of what's going on cuz I'm so in the dark. 
and now I'm I, I I feel like my suspicion is is supported, and I need to I need to find out what's what's happening, and that's that's what leads her to do the tunnel raid at the end too, right? That feeling like I need to know what this was all for, right? <laughs> Everything I've gone for so far, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk about uh, let's talk about Josh Brolin uh, for a bit here. Um, so I, I recently got into a discussion with with Mike uh, about True Grit, which he was also in, and determining whether Josh Brolin could ever play a truly likable character. Because we talked about <laughs> like could Josh Brolin have played the Matt Damon role in that film, where where you have to be likable despite doing terrible things, and I'm not sure he can. Like he's entertaining, he's engaging, but he's like that. You know, he's like that that friend of yours who's kind of a douchebag, but you're like, yeah, but he's, you know, he's okay. He's funny. Like, but he's not someone you would like, like, oh, yeah, you got to talk to this guy. He's a really great guy. Like, that's not. And I think you get yeah. that from the very moment he enters as he's like kind of disrespectfully dressed, like just like wearing flip flops, just does not give I a fuck that. about where he is. And it's a great little character choice to dress him in that way. That he does feel above all these people in the room. Like he's he's that guy who's like, you know, sometimes when you when you make a lot of money, like you have to you dress really well. But when you make a lot of money, you dress however yeah. the fuck you want. And that's the yeah, level of you, power we're talking about where he's like, I'm going to show up in a T-shirt and flip flops and no one will say word one to me because yep. you're lucky I'm talking to you. And that's kind of and that's the way he treats Kate. Throughout the film too, like and there's a there's a scene after uh, after getting across the border and after they end up like you know essentially killing civilians uh, with with military grade weapon and she goes after him and says like this is terrible and he's like will you shut up you're here to learn just be quiet and learn and that's kind of his attitude about everyone who works under him is like if I don't need to respect you I'm not gonna. I don't I don't know that he's able to really be a truly likable character. Yeah. <laughs> um but he plays that he plays that like uh douchebag that gets things done like roll pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> um and 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 definitely I think Josh Brolin um and his character and just you know and Alejandro and how especially how they both treat Kate are you know there's a lot of similarities between the two and just how in the dark they keep her and how above it all they right. both seem like like we know what the hell's going on. You're out of your element. Just just sit back, okay, and 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 do what we tell you to do. Um, but Josh Brolin, a little bit more so, I think, puts on this act that is like you know even in that scene that you just described, like him explaining like, hey, you're here to learn. Just just learn. Just watch us. Like you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> and he's the one who who most of the time is. Uh, reluctantly, uh, albeit, but reluctantly answering her questions and giving right. her information, but just enough to keep her on board. Yep. Because um, she is he, a means then, to an end. Like he needs, yes. he needs to keep her around. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, just it, it, <laughs> he he really Josh Brolin really embodied just that air of like I guess normalization mm-hmm. of of all of this stuff that was going on, where Kate is the opposite end. Uh, just like, oh my god, <laughs> nothing this about this is normal. Yeah, what is happening? Is <laughs> and Josh Brolin is just like, you know, chewing his gum and and like, you know, yeah, making it's a Tuesday. Quips. That's that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> like, and uh, let's go, uh, let's go grab a beer. You know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's, exactly. That's his, that's his character. Um, I think that's what makes the opposite ends of these. I think that's what makes the turn at the end of the film, where he essentially lectures her about the war on drugs 
so much more affecting is that for most of the film, we feel like, yeah, this guy does bad things, but like we can't even really take him seriously because he's constantly joking. He's he's constantly, you know, just just being that guy. And then when he turns at the end and kind of schools her and the audience about the situation they're actually in, it makes us take a second look and be like, oh, Dean refers to a time when one group controlled every aspect of the drug trade. Providing a measure of order that we could control. And until somebody finds a way to convince 20% of the population to stop snorting and smoking that shit, order's the best we can hope for. And what you saw up there was Alejandro working toward returning that order. So, so speaking of that, let's talk about the the writing for a bit because I think this the script is particularly excellent. There's a couple moments where I felt like ah oh, we're a little bit too on the nose. Like she literally has a line where she says, "No, I just need to know." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, we 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 get it. We we know she needs to know. You don't need to like have her angrily tell her partner that as she's slamming the trunk of the car. Like, yeah, I, I got it. But I, one thing I found really interesting is the kind of subplot of the Mexican police officer. Um, that they took great yes. pains to kind of show his family. And I was really impressed with that because in movies like this, we tend to just show the corrupt side of law enforcement, right? And there is that, but we also see him being protective of his son. Like his son reaches out to try and touch his firearm and says, no, you don't ever touch that. Like he's trying to, as much as he can, trying to shield his child from that and trying to spend time with his kid and spend time with his wife. And you feel like you can kind of fill in this backstory of the reason he's doing this is to provide for his family and to make sure he stays alive for his son. So it's really interesting that it turns that on its head later when he essentially becomes just a pawn for Benicio del Toro, del Toro's character. At the, at the end when, when he eventually, you know, gets shot, it, there's, there's a side of you that's, you know, feels sorry for him instead of just like, Oh, that's what you deserve. You, yeah, corrupt, definitely. You know, police officer. And for me um, at a certain level, I was like, actively angry at the writer of this film like you made me care about this character like you did all this work and he dies for almost no reason like just like for him it just seems like well fucking it was a bad day you know (laughs) and and where this character is wiped clean and they've spent all this time building him up like i wasn't sure where it was going but i didn't think he would be dispatched so kind of offhandedly there are normal people who are affected by this not just right. on the side of the border where we live right. you know and not like, just kingpins not millionaires but like yes. surface level street level people yes yes exactly so i thought i thought that was i thought that was great i was very confused through most of the movie yeah like when why I are we this. who is this guy like, why, why yeah. do we keep going back to this man like right. <laughs> what's happening how is he connected then um, you're like oh he's just a sucker uh, like yeah yeah yeah, that's really all he was. He was just a sucker, and and he lost his life because of it. And we don't even know what got him drawn into this in the first place. Um, which which was something that I I kind of wanted to answer at the end. Mm-hmm. Just just sort of, and I think part of it was because I wanted to know if I should really really feel bad for him or just kind of <laughs> right right feel bad. For him. Like, right. <laughs> was it still kind of his choice to get into this or was it like he had no choice and like, you know, right. And unfortunately this happened. To, but but I mean, not necessary, but it was something that when you put that scenario out there, it's it's like it it makes you curious to find out more about this character, which is great. That's yep. that's good writing. That's good. That's good setup. Um. So, yeah, I like I like that. Yeah. The other thing that I felt was really good writing is. 
partially, you know, the twist with Benicio del Toro's character, which I did not see coming at all. It was like, I mean, I did, I knew something was off, but I certainly did not see that ending with him like murdering a family. Like I did not see that coming at all. But one of the things I really like about the setup of that is there's a scene where Emily Blunt, Blunt kind of comes out of the tunnel and confronts him for what he's doing, what he's doing, because she's pseudo figured something out and in a lesser movie we would have this long standoff where they both spout monologues at each other about why what i'm doing is right why what you're doing is wrong but instead he just shoots her like and that is (laughs) like we know that that character there's there's hidden depths but we don't at this point we don't think of him as being cold-blooded towards people who we feel don't deserve it like sure we have these interrogation scenes and we have him beating the living shit out of john bernthal in the back of a car Mm -hmm. but these are people where we feel like they have done wrong and they deserve punishment in some way whereas this character of of emily blunt we just are like well she's the good guy and instead of like waiting for her to figure things out he just pops her knowing that she has a bulletproof vest and just like says like okay I'm going to leave now. You go ahead and catch your breath. And I was, I remember being shocked by that in the theater, like how quickly everything ramped up in that sequence. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a great sequence. Yeah. Again, for a similar reason, I just, there could have definitely been a monologue there, several monologues, even, yes. but it, they, they didn't go that route, which was fantastic. And also, I mean, completely fit the characterization of Alejandro, like up until mm-hmm. that point, it just like, He's Look, not a big talker. That's no, no, not quite. Uh, <laughs> um, he's a man of action, mm-hmm. and Kate is somebody who he understands is very naive. So why even bother? Like, just get out of my way. Right. right? I'm going. You know, I'm. 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 Like I'm literally, gonna... you are not worth my words. So I'm right. just gonna fix this right. little problem. I, yeah, I have an appointment to you know to keep. <laughs> like, I, I have somewhere to be. I have right a family now. to murder. So um, <laughs> we got stuff to do. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a great, great scene. And I mean, the, it, it, it wasn't something I expected. Definitely not that quick to yeah. happen. Just him just firing off two shots, just like, okay, it's, okay, what, why are you here? But nope, pow, pow. Yeah, I'm done with you Goodbye. now. Exactly. Yeah, I'm done with you. Just, you can, you can figure things out later if you want, but right. I, I don't have time You can time piece to... all this together, but I got work to do. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, I thought overall with the with the and I think this goes with the writing is just that there was there was a right amount of escalation mm-hmm. through this film. Um, it never felt like we were building up to this like super big climax necessarily. That was just right. like over the top. It was the climax was effective and appropriate and personal. Um, but not like bombastic or anything like that. And right. it, it again, it completely fit the uh, I guess the pace and, and the kind of the feel of the rest of the movie. Um, but but in order for the movie to continue to have this kind of feeling of tension, right, and trepidation, it, it, you have to write uh, the correct amount of of escalation throughout the film, you know, so that 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 feeling can be sustained. Um, and they were they were able to do that in in number you know the, there were a number of scenes that allowed us to allowed our tension to be slightly heightened and then brought us back down just a little bit just enough so they can bring us back up again yeah. you know um, and again they didn't like blow their load you know too soon or or too late or anything everything was just built 
just right on top of each other. So. You know, you got to love a movie that blows its load right at the right time. That's that's <laughs> really what we're saying here. Definitely. Just yep. good timing. Yep. All right. Uh, so let's <laughs> let's uh, briefly talk about uh, the production value. I don't have anything bad to say here. I think, like you said, the movie is painstakingly put together. There's not a moment that appears false like that. That opening sequence with kind of the the drug bust and then that haunting scene of all the bodies in the walls, which is a hell of a way to start a movie, which is just like, oh, I was not – what did I get myself into here with this movie? I was not prepared for this. All the way going to like kind of our – you know, our confrontation in the tunnels with kind of our – you know, our uh, our military guys uh, creating this big distraction. Like it – all that stuff really works. There's not a single moment in this movie where I'm like, uh that doesn't look quite right. Like everything looks kind of pitch perfect in this film to me. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. You mentioned the movie doesn't ramp up too much. It doesn't go bombastic, which I like, but all those action sequences uh, seem, you know, for action sequences seem very realistic and seem very grounded. It doesn't yes. feel like this. There's nobody out there like just, you know, take an automatic weapon and spraying down the border station. Like it's not, it's not that type no, of, no, 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 you know, it's no. not a Schwarzenegger <laughs> movie from the eighties. It's like, Everything is contained. Even even the gunplay is contained. Everything is short bursts, and it and it makes perfect sense yeah. for for what the movie is. It's not like a uh, uh, what was that movie? Olympus has fallen, where uh, they they spent the last two years uh, just like I don't know putting in their own operatives into the you know police force and everything, and getting these passcodes and right. have trapped our. Like nothing like that. It wasn't some like super villain plan. Right. Look, there were some two guys in <laughs> like a red Impala and a green Honda Civic, right. and just just with face tattoos and guns, and that was it. Just like try to try to stop those cars, guys. That's, That's our it. plan. That's it. That's our big plan. Yeah. <laughs> That's it is, big plan. There's no sleeper agents at the border. Like no, 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 no. But there was, but there was still such a level of like, uh, I guess. Not necessarily professionalism, but just if, in 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 terms of what the uh, uh, I guess the army guys or the CIA, whoever the hell they worked for, uh, they had to they were at a heightened right level of of just tension, and um, there was lots of communication, lots of um, order in how they approached those cars and how they um, kind of you know uh, uh, viewed. I guess the the potential areas where you know an ambush could come from, um, and just how they handled the situation. It, 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 like you said, there was just a lot of realism that um, didn't need a like a fake or artificial, you know, um, like bombastic action. It just right. it was it was it was tension filled and anxious enough on its own, being real. Yeah, which is great. Absolutely. I think that actually leads us in perfectly to favorite scenes, because I think one of the best sequences of last year is that border scene. Like, I think it's like you talked earlier about this movie building tension and like you're just waiting for it the whole time. They even bring it up when they go into the plan. Like they say, you know, until we're back in this building, we're not safe. Remember right. that. And there's a very right. pointed reason why they do that. And, you know, you're not sure where the attack is going to come from. And you feel like you feel like for a second it's over. And then you have Emily Blunt having to shoot a civilian, which I'm sure she's never had to do. Uh, and that but that whole build up and that whole sequence is absolutely fantastic. Definitely one of my favorite sequences of 2015. For sure. That was that was by far my favorite scene out of the film. Um, it just it did everything perfectly. Um, it's, it's, 
and and, uh, and I'll add this something I forgot to mention in production value, the score oh, in this film incredible, phenomenal. Yeah, and that's something <laughs> Johan, I rarely Johansson. notice. But as I was watching this at home, I was like, God, this is terrifying. <laughs> like, and a lot yes. of it is because of the mood yes. set by that music. Yes, exactly. Just and again, like everything builds on like the direction adds to this tension, the the writing adds to this tension, the acting and the score just all fit together so perfectly to elevate this film and and just make you just on edge the entire time. No even even as it moves slowly through scenes, you're you're on edge mm-hmm. regardless because of all these different aspects working together. It was god fantastic. Um but yeah, that that scene was definitely one of my favorites. Uh, I'm trying to think of what my second favorite might be. Probably, uh, I you know what I, the the dinner scene right at the end where mm. uh, Benicio is talking to uh, and I forget the drug pins drug kingpin's name, but when he's talking to Dead him, guy. yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, when he's talking to him because it 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 it's kind of the the culmination of everything that's been going on and all the shit that Kate went through. Um, it's, it's when we realize it. it's his story. Like, yes. Really, that this yes. movie is about Benicio del Toro's character. It's it's quite the switch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's such a good scene, and then how 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 brutal it was, just because. Yeah, I, I remember. But still, not as brutal that... as what was done to him. So, in a weird no. way, you're kind of like, well, that guy kind of got off light. There was no yeah. acid involved. Like the deaths were quick. Like yes, okay, yes. <laughs> but it's still it was it was one of those things where you know. I think because throughout the film we're kind of rooting for right Alejandro yeah just regardless he's on the you know quote unquote good guy side um and so when we get to that point it's like you know the even the the kingpin himself is kind of like you know don't do it in front of my boys you know because he's right. thinking okay he's kill me all right fine and Benicio's like uh pow 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 yeah <laughs> like, have we fucking met do you remember what happened to me your like family's a, done first. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Manners. I have manners. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, that was like, oh, crap. OK, yeah, you you made him very angry. Right. Apparently. And this is the moment where his character is truly revealed and it leaves us as an audience in this weird place of we don't know what to think of him anymore. Yes. Because up till then, it's like someone like, you know, something bad has happened to him. Like you get the the Josh Brolin moment where he kind of tells his story to Emily Blunt. And you're like, oh, this poor man. But then as he's like murdering children, you're like, uh, well, I get why you did what you did, but I don't know how to feel about you anymore. Because before you yeah. really liked him, you felt like he was doing things for the right reason, even when he was doing bad things. And it it leaves it leaves the decision up to you. Like, did he cross the line or is this still okay it's just still for the greater good uh, yes that's that's really where it leaves us at and i mean that in addition to even the scene after that where he goes to kate's place and tries to for or does force her to sign that yeah that's uh, actually what i was just going to bring up because that's my yes, other favorite scene i just think it's it's like a master course in acting on both ends of this scene i think she is tremendous she's able to break down and cry without seeming weak in that scene, there's still this like core of strength to what she's doing because she is still up until the very end, not willing to sign this document because yeah. for her, like she's, I mean, we'll talk about this more in a bit, but she's very, she's got some very clear ideas about what's right and what's wrong and what we should do and what we shouldn't. Whereas everyone else is definitely, you know, to put it lightly, a bit more gray in that area. Like they're much more willing yes. to take these steps and his calm and almost pity 
for her in this scene is oddly moving. Like, just kind of like, I'm doing this because I have to. It's not about you. <laughs> it's about the world we live in. You know, he has that Stop line about – So, yeah. <laughs> he has that line about, like, the world is full of wolves. Like, it's a wolf's world, basically, and you're not a wolf. Mm-hmm. And there's, and I love that they take that scene the extra step and they have her pull her gun on him as he's walking away. And he just kind of looks at her almost like bemused, like, yeah, OK, that's not going to happen. You're not a wolf. You're not going to kill me. And he just turns his back on her and walks away. And like, yeah. no. And it's such a great little another great moment of <clears throat> visual storytelling that a lot of movies wouldn't even have that. They would just have her signing the paper and put her head down and put her head down and then just fade to black. But instead, they take that extra step where it's almost like he's looking at her almost like, again, like a child. Like, you don't you don't get it. You don't know yeah. what it's like. And you think this is the first time I've had someone pull a gun on me. I know the type of person who will shoot me in the back and it ain't you. And just walks yeah. away. And I was like, what a great, great moment. So that's definitely one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, me too. And there, there's one part of that scene that that also kind of jumped out to me is when um, – I mean, first of all, holy shit, that's creepy. You're just in my apartment? Okay. <laughs> he seems um, to do that but, a lot. just kind of pops up. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Like, is he Batman? What's happening? <laughs> um, so Batman got real dark so, and gritty. That's <laughs> <laughs> So in that scene, like, it's um, – he has a gun in his hand but only one glove on, which, which when I first saw that, I thought, okay, that's weird. If you're trying to prevent fingerprints, you know, why not also wear it on the other hand? We'll get to that. Um, and then so so when he sits down and is all like, you know, you you have to sign this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she's. You can see the the camera really slowly panning in like first it starts as an over the shoulder uh, over over Alejandro's shoulder um, looking at Kate's face. And then as he gives her the paper and the pen and it's, it's all like you have to sign this. The camera slowly pans into her as as she recognizes, like, oh God, like I already know what this guy's capable of, right? Right. But I I I can't sign this, and she's just like, what am I gonna do? Like, basically, her world is just like collapsing in on her, right? You know, in this moment, like, is she is she gonna is she gonna you know break down to to that to to their level, you know, basically, and is she gonna like give up her her morals um and she and she does because she doesn't want to die well uh, you know <laughs> he, greater good right like, uh... um, <laughs> and, then, and then and then just the kind of you know very subtle reveal that okay he's wearing that one glove the glove that that he's holding the gun with uh because that's her gun that he's mm-hmm. holding <laughs> and yep. and threatens to frame her frame her suicide if she doesn't sign nope. oh god if yeah. if the dinner scene wasn't enough to tell us like the kind of guy that this man is, that scene definitely did it. Yeah, especially because it's someone I think like he may not respect her, but you could tell he likes her. There's not mm. this animosity towards her like there mm. is toward the the people that he's killed earlier in the film. Like this is someone yeah. who I think if you would question him about her, doesn't dislike her, thinks she's a good person, maybe too good of a person. Like yeah. she's not a wolf, as as he mentions, and the yeah. lengths he would be willing to go to are pretty terrifying. Yes, indeed, indeed. So, so let's talk about the the theme for a second. So, as I was watching the movie, it just kind of like stood out to me that this is really about like difficult moral decisions and what's what's best. And it, 
I, I don't think there is a hero in this movie. Like there are moments with Kate's character that were like, like you said earlier, go get your hands dirty. Like this is not this is not a world where you just do the right thing and everything will be fine. Like this is the drug war. This is we see on our tour of Juarez, like dead, mangled, naked bodies hanging in the street. Like this is the world we're living in. And then we have Josh Brolin's character, who maybe is a little too willing to get his hands dirty. And then uh-huh. we got Benicio del Toro's character, where I'm not even sure he is doing this for the greater good. You know, we don't really yeah. see him after this movie, although. I hear rumors that there's going to be a sequel, which terrifies me because I don't think it's even uh, yeah, written by the same person, which sounds Ugh. like, you know, just a disaster waiting to happen. But all we know about him really is his past and what happened to his family. And like, yes, this may have done greater good by taking out one of the cartel members, but I don't know that that's why he's doing it. You know, uh, so so what do you think? Which of these characters is doing the most for the greatest amount of good? Ugh, um. Well, it's definitely not Kate because she's not doing shit. Um, <laughs> uh, I, for the greater good, I, I mean, I kind of lean towards towards Matt, Josh Brolin's character. Yeah, I mean, is Josh Brolin actually the hero of the story? Is that oh where God. we're at? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, that's yeah. Apparently, I mean, you know, this is this is the feel-good movie about the war on drugs here that we're watching, and and Josh Brolin is our hero. Oh boy, um, yeah, I I think he is. I think he is, and I think unfortunately, like when you listen to his reasoning for what he did, I mean, the 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 unfortunate part is we all understand it while he's saying it. We're just right. like, ah, God damn it, yeah, you're you're probably right um you know it's just one of those things where and and definitely in this day and age we for the most part i think most people understand the war on drugs and just the drug war is just a failure (laughs) yes not only a failure just so unwinnable yeah in in that you're never ever gonna destroy this i mean uh, unless you just made every drug legal i suppose then right. there's no need to illegally transport drugs and things right. like that but you know that's that's really the only way that you win um so so with that understanding we kind of look at josh brolin's character and are like yeah yeah i guess that i mean i don't know how else you do it you hope for just the you hope for the most amount of control that you can that you can set up um otherwise right. it's 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 hard. It's tough. You just got to make it as as easy as possible for you. And that means sometimes making, you know, bedfellows with with people you shouldn't be. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the the kind of marks of the brilliance of this movie is is the fact that they make a character who makes all the morally right decisions. You start to think of her as like you are just getting in the way. And mm. most movies a character who makes all the right decisions, that's your hero. That's the person you look to for moral yeah. guidance. Like, this is the right thing to do. That's your you Captain know? America. Right, yeah. exactly. You don't you don't kill civilians, which seems like something that would be like, well, yeah, obviously. But in this movie, no, actually, you do kill civilians because it's better for the greater good, not only for American citizens, but for Mexican citizens and the citizens of the world. And I'm sure that's how Brolin's character looks at this, is that we have to make difficult decisions 
for the betterment of everyone involved. So it's it's a really mm-hmm. interesting trick that this movie plays because the first half you're like, yeah, Kate is great. We got to follow Kate. She, she knows what's up. No, she doesn't know what knows what's up. She knows nothing, but (laughs) she makes the right decisions. She's someone I can kind of look up to as kind of like, this is our beacon. And then about halfway through the movie, it switches and you're like, uh, actually, no, you should probably go home. I think it starts with that scene in the bank where she rushes in and you're just like, Oh, Oh, what are you doing? This is never going to stick. I think that's the moment that the movie turns on the audience and is like, no, actually this movie is not about her. It's about how we fix an unfixable problem. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yep. All right. So the last thing we have to do is talk about the movie we're pairing this with. And because this week is so bereft of uh, good new releases, I refuse. (laughs) I mean, part of it is because Mike will just bitch my ear off. I'm like, I don't want to see that movie. (laughs) It'll cry. And I got to listen to that nonsense. Uh, Because even when he says he's good movies, like Arrival, yeah, still not happy. So, oh, uh, so I decided, like, okay, let's look at what's being released on iTunes on VOD, and one of my favorite movies of this year, Hell or High Water, is coming out. So I won't talk a lot about what I think about it because I'll talk about that later this week with Mike. But I think we can talk about kind of expectations going in. I can kind of remember I was not super excited about this movie. Like I was like, I'll go see it, but I'm not. I mean, it's been well documented on the show that I'm not the world's biggest Chris Pine fan. Mm. Uh, so, but he gets really good publicity for this movie and people talking about him as, as a great performance here. So what are your expectations? Cause you haven't seen this yet, right? Yeah, I have not seen Hell or High Water. Um, I, I'll try to give you my expectations before, you know, the movie came out. Cause then afterwards it was kind of like, oh, there's, there was a lot of good. Best of the year. Know, press yeah, yeah. Exactly. Surrounding it. Yeah. So, and I was like, well, what? Okay. Um, so before the movie came out, yeah, I, I had kind of heard about it here and there and had seen, I think maybe like a couple advertisements for it. I don't think I necessarily like took the time to watch the full trailer at at that point, but it, it seemed, it seemed whatever I, there was nothing about it that necessarily like piqued my interest. Uh, I didn't really care about the actors involved. I mean, I thought Chris, I think Chris Pine is fine. He, he, I'm indifferent. Yeah, let's say just another white leading man, like uh, another Chris, like whatever. (laughs) Um, Ben Foster, uh, who I think is a great actor, but he's he's the actor that you cast um, to be next to your star actor. He's the crazy Um, guy. He's the unbalanced. Like he's the wild card. That's always his role. He's Mm -hmm. never the star actor in your movie. He's always the one standing next to your star. So um, I was just like, okay, that's fine, too. Uh, Whatever. And um yeah, that was that was it. Uh, you know, just small town, uh, a story in a small town. It seemed like uh, them being bank robbers. Nothing about it seemed unique. Nothing about it seemed particularly interesting. I was okay with not seeing it. Right. Um, and then I heard I heard good Boy, things. Boy, don't it. you feel silly? Oh yeah, I know. I, know. <laughs> I think the only thing bringing me in was I found out that, uh, and this is the reason we're pairing it with Sicario, which I should have mentioned, is that uh, it has the same screenwriter. Um, yes. So you know it's not going to be simple. <laughs> you know right. that at the very least it will be layered. So that had me interested. But that, but I'm with you. Like the rest of it, I was kind of like, I mean, I guess. And then I started hearing people kind of talk about, oh, this is amazing. And then of course went and saw it. But yeah, yeah. So. And I didn't, I didn't know till basically yesterday that that <laughs> it was the same writer. Um, so now, so now my my interest in it, in it is is much higher. 
Um, I feel like I'm just going to take credit for that. I'm just going to be like, (laughs) sure, sure. You, you do that. (laughs) (laughs) You need all the wins you can get. Oh boy. That is the goddamn (laughs) truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm likely to, I'm not making any promises, but I'm likely to watch this film soon. Um, um, depending on uh, if I how quickly I forget about it <laughs> after we get no, off. No, 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 that's not acceptable. No, <laughs> I need I need a guarantee that within the next month you will watch Hell or High Water. Uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see we'll, is not a guarantee, Baruch. I'm going we'll, we'll to bother look, you about this. You are going to be sick. You're going to get a I text a day. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you why we'll see is the best you'll get. I still own godfather part two and i have yet to watch it so there's well, there's it's a good a thing you didn't lead with that because i would have hung up on you like that's worse <laughs> than the blade runner thing that's, that's terrible there's there's a cue jesus okay. christ i have like, i have as an italian I i'm offended like that's <laughs> like deeply deeply offended just as an italian that's <laughs> an italian as a human being as someone who likes <laughs> movies like just all of uh, it highly offensive well, no, we can't all be perfect, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's tough for you. I I get that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, one more time uh, before you take off, why don't you tell people how to reach you and your show online? Yes. So, um, again, I am uh, one half of the Cinema Bun Cinema Bun podcast. Uh, you can find all of our past episodes on cinemabunpodcast dot com. Um, make sure to check us out. Yeah, we just we just did an episode. On well, depending on when this came out, either arrival, yeah, arrival. We just did an episode on arrival, um, and um, yeah, we we always talk uh, kind of movie news and review a movie every week. Um, you can find us on social media uh, at Cinema Bun Cast on Twitter. Um, we have a Facebook page. Just search for Cinema Bun Podcast. Uh, we also have an Instagram page if you're into that sort of thing, I guess. Um, Cinema Bun Podcast on Instagram, and um, you can you can check me out on Twitter. Uh, the whenever I decide to you know be on there and tweet, uh, which is not as much as it used to be, but um, you can find me on Twitter at Ethiopian Boy. All good soldiers crack like Okay, that's it for our show this week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. The next time you hear from me, we will be doing not a new release review, but a uh, new video release review of Hell or High Water with Mike. So stay tuned for that. And if you'd like to connect more with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. The best way to do it, honestly, is to go on Twitter and find me at PC Case Study. I am sure to respond. But if you really want to go the extra mile, go to patreon.com slash pop culture case study and there you can donate to the show on a per episode basis and even get some pretty cool rewards for that donation and if you want to hear more great movie podcasts head on over to followingfilms.com and check out some of our other shows like war machine versus warhorse or the best and worst of the best until next time i will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch I was joking with Mike about uh, how pissed off, how pissed off I am at you because you used to be my go to because your schedule was so open. Now it's like, and I realized as I was like messaging you to said, I was like, "Fuck, he's got a job. God damn it, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the worst." Yeah. Doesn't really work out so much anymore. No. I, mean, I, I barely want to do my show because. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I don't know if you're interested in like a La La Land or something. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, okay. (laughs) And that's what matters. It's not about what you like, it's what you despise. That's much more important to me. Yes. That's what that's what brought all the voters together to vote for Donald Trump, right? Oh, yeah, that yes. and, that and racism. 